This is The Guardian. Today, Britain has joined the US in bombing Yemen. But has it walked into a trap? Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. If you look on a map, the Red Sea is this long, narrow canal between the east coast of Africa on one side and Yemen and Saudi Arabia on the other. And if you're running a ship loaded with containers sailing across the Indian Ocean, trying to reach Europe, the Red Sea is a shortcut. You can skip going all the way around South Africa, save 10 days of travel, millions of dollars in fuel and wages. About 12% of global trade takes this shortcut, passes through the Red Sea every day. But if you zoom in on that map to enter the Red Sea, you've got to pass through this tiny gap, 16 miles wide, that in Arabic is called Bab al-Mandab, the Gate of Grief. And for the past month, the militia that controls most of Yemen has said, while Israel continues to bomb Gaza, Any ships that pass by Yemen pass through the gate of grief. On their way to Israel will be targets. They've launched missiles, hijacked a ship, virtually brought trade through the Red Sea to a standstill. And in the past week, the US and UK have struck back. For months, we've been warned that the conflict in Gaza could spill over into the whole Middle East that it could suck in Western powers, including the UK. Over the past few days in the Red Sea, that might have already happened. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, why the US and the UK have bombed Yemen. Patrick Wintour, you're The Guardian's diplomatic editor. And since October 7, most of our attention has been on Israel and Gaza or on the Lebanese border with Israel. But... All along, there's been this other group in the arena. Tell me about how the Houthis responded to the October 7 attack and its aftermath. Well, the Houthis have, as soon as the October 7 attacks occurred, said that this was something that they would respond to. In a sense, nobody took them that seriously, given the scale of the movement. People were focused much more on Lebanon. But they started by firing missiles at Israel from a very great distance, and they were knocked down quite easily. We begin in the Middle East, where Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen issued a video statement on Tuesday claiming ballistic missiles and armed drone attacks against Israel. Okay, but within weeks we saw that actually they were serious about this. What did they start doing? Well, they looked at the geography in which they operate and they looked also at what they've done in the past, which is that they have tried to either board or fire at ships in the Red Sea. The most spectacular of the efforts that they undertook was to film themselves landing with a helicopter. 
which had the Palestinian flag on it and seizing a ship that was going down the Red Sea and taking it to the port of Hodeida, which um, they now run. And then even after that dramatic incident, they escalated even further. What did they start doing to ships in the Red Sea? So initially they said that they were targeting Israeli flagged or linked ships. They then expanded the targets to ships that were going towards Israeli ports, regardless of what flagging or ownership they had. Then, instead of just trying to board these ships, often using quite small vessels, they started to fire missiles at ships. And then, as it became clear that this was quite a successful operation, they felt that they needed to also attack military ships that were trying to protect the commercial shipping. Okay, and those military ships were now in the Red Sea because after weeks of attacks and hijackings, Western countries, the US, UK, started to get involved. Tell me about their involvement. Well, it was a gradual build-up because there was initially an operation called Operation Prosperity Guardian, not to be confused with the newspaper, which was designed to protect shipping. It was unclear exactly what the command and control structure of that was going to be and the degree to which America was going to be responsible. And there was some unhappiness amongst EU states, particularly Spain and France, that they should be under the command of America a smaller group than the alliance that was formed under Operation Prosperity Guardian, issued a statement which was clearly a kind of final warning to the Houthis, and I think there was around 12 countries that had signed that, that said that if they continued to attack shipping and, in effect, close down the Red Sea as a route for a large number of very important oil tankers, there would be unspecified consequences. But it was clear that there was a warning of a kind of military reprisals. We will make sure that we respond to the Houthis as they continue this outrageous behavior, along with our allies. No. Expectations are growing that Britain is about to launch military action against Iranian-backed rebels in Yemen after the Prime Minister chaired a meeting with his cabinet. And then we woke a few days ago to the news that the US and the UK were bombing Yemen. So bring me up to speed. What's happened over the past few days? Well, this larger alliance of around 12 countries actually ended up with two countries being America and the UK becoming involved in military action. And that was done on Thursday. And they hit around as many as 60 to 70 different sites dotted around Yemen. And I think what they were trying to do was to hit what they regarded as missile sites of the Houthi forces. That was the intention. We could not have been clearer with our warnings, which they chose to ignore, and enough was enough. So, Patrick, that's what's happening, but I want to understand what might be behind it all. So, can you start by telling me, who are the Houthis? Where did they come from? Well, at least 20, 25 years ago, they really didn't feature on the political stage in Yemen at all. I mean, they are a Shia Zaidi sect, very much believe in They need to intervene in public life. They make a big thing of their anti-corruption. And they very much were focused in the north of Yemen, in the hills. And then gradually, through a mixture of pretty unholy alliances, switching sides and brutality, they became an ever more powerful force until, in 2014, they formed an alliance to actually capture the 
capital, Sana'a, and then they looked as if they were going to head even further south towards Aden. And at that point in 2015, Saudi Arabia decided they had to intervene and force the Houthis back. And at the same time, the Houthis gradually started to become backed by Iran, who realized that this was a relatively cheap way to tie down two of the forces that they're most opposed to in the region, which is the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. But they have really catapulted themselves onto the world stage at great, great speed. And how significant a force are the Houthis? How large are they as an army? The Houthis are in this very interesting position of being both a militia and a government, but they are neither both fully, so they're a hybrid. And they recruit most from the north. And I think you could say at times they can have a standing army as large as 10,000. And it's interesting that in the last two to three years, the professionalism of their army has changed. And I think there are signs of what happens when Iran helps to train an army. And so that's the history of the Houthis. Why are they saying that they're now getting involved in this war between Israel and Gaza? What is their motive? Well, their motive stated is that they want the West to do more to force Israel to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. And that they say that actually the reality is that America says that they're pressing Israel to allow aid into Gaza, but they're not doing anything in practice to bring this about. Houthi military spokesperson Brigadier Yahya Sari said they plan to carry out more strikes until the Israeli aggression stops. The Houthis have a long-standing ideological hatred of Israel and of America. There is a slogan which the Houthis have and have had for at least 20 years, which is death to America, death to Israel, curse to the Jews. It's deep in the psyche, but what we're seeing now is something much, much more deep-rooted. And it is a response, I think, to what they see is happening in Gaza. And they think this is a legitimate way to put pressure on Israel to allow more aid into Gaza. Is there a domestic element to this for the Houthis? Does this help them back in Yemen with Yemenis? There's two ways in which I think it helps the Houthis. One is that they had, during a period of truce, there has been some signs that the Yemeni population in Houthi-controlled areas are becoming restive with the government they're being provided with by the Houthis. There's a talk about the amount of corruption and failure to administer public services. So this is a distraction from that. But the second side of it, it's made them more popular in Yemen, not just in the areas that they control, but in other areas. So since these airstrikes that we've been seeing over the past few days, what's been the response from Houthi leaders? Well, it's one of defiance. They've said that they will continue to attack. They have managed to continue to fire some missiles and they've managed to almost every day since this big wave of attacks by America. And I think it's shown, which I think some of the members of the UN-recognized government, which is based in Aden, have warned the West, is that the Houthis have managed to hide and put underground quite a lot of its missile sites. And I think they are probably getting more help than previously from Iran, both in terms of armaments and in terms of intelligence. So there's no sign that this is stopping. 
The issue now is what does the West do to ensure that the Red Sea is navigable? But at the moment, there's no sign it's had any deterrent impact. And some people argue that the US and the UK have done precisely what the Houthis wanted. This is exactly the kind of confrontation that they were looking for. I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that you know, something extraordinary has happened here. The UK has started bombing Yemen. It's now involved in seemingly a war in another Middle Eastern country. So I want to focus on the UK's involvement specifically. What's been their role in the airstrikes so far? It's been said that the UK struck 13 different targets on Thursday. And certainly we've got our own destroyer on patrol in the Red Sea But as has been the case in most military action involving America and the UK, the UK is largely in the sort of rear guard of the train, showing political solidarity and diplomatic solidarity. But it is striking there are only two countries that are hitting Yemen at present militarily. So it is an extraordinary step for the UK to have taken, but I think it's sort of consistent with the American-British special relationship. Once America decided it was going to take military action, it would have been probably more extraordinary if the UK had not joined in. You said that there were 12 members of this Operation Prosperity Guardian. That means 10 of those countries looked at this option of airstrikes on Yemen and said, not for us. Yes, I think three or four others said that they supported the action, but they didn't actually do anything practical to do so. They gave verbal support, Australia and Canada, for instance. And I I think one of the issues ahead is if there is to be further strikes on Yemen, whether more countries will join in or whether they'll still hold back. But the UK has got to think through the consequences for its role in the Middle East if it gets very seriously embroiled in a longer war in Yemen. Another striking thing about the UK's involvement is that It happened without any kind of parliamentary oversight or endorsement. So how did they explain the need to do this without getting approval from Parliament first? The need for Parliament to be either informed or allowed to vote on military action undertaken by UK forces is a convention that's in a state of flux. It started to develop in 2003 with the war in Iraq where there was a vote. And subsequently, there became a sort of convention that normally there would be an attempt to inform Parliament in advance. And there was a particular occasion when America was going to strike on some Syrian targets because of the use of chemical weapons. And very surprisingly, the government, which was at that point led by David Cameron, was defeated because Labour opposed it. So subsequent to that, there's been greater nervousness by the executive and by the UK military in actually asking formally for approval. So what happened on this occasion, and this is the excuse that will be used, I think, quite frequently, is that it's wrong to signal to the enemy that a military attack is about to happen. I think in reality, in this case, it was quite clear some kind of military action was imminent and that whatever avoidance actions that Houthis going to take, they'd already taken. So I don't think that really holds up. We now come to the statement I call the Prime Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'd like to update the... Rishi Sunak went to the Commons on Monday to explain to Parliament what the UK had done and why. What did he tell members? Well, he told people that if they didn't act, the principle of freedom of navigation would be destroyed. And this was a principle that doesn't just apply to the Red Sea, but around the world. We did so in self-defence, consistent with the UN Charter, and to uphold freedom of navigation, as Britain has always done. 
also having made these threats to take military action, there wasn't really any other choice but to do something. And he also stressed, you know, what would be the consequences of not taking action. It would have meant commercial shipping was a sitting duck um, weeks and months ahead. So there was no choice but to do this. It was a necessary and proportionate response to a direct threat to UK vessels and therefore to the UK itself. I thought he was on less strong ground when he was asked, what are you going to do if the Houthis defy you? Because, and he just simply said, well, we'll look at that when the moment comes. And he tried to portray what they did on Thursday as a single, self-standing, discreet action and not part of a longer military campaign. I want to be clear that these were limited strikes. They were carefully targeted at launch sites for drones and ballistic missiles to degrade the Houthis' capacity to make further attacks on international shipping. You'll have to think through what to do next. It might not just be him thinking through what happens next. We're likely in an election year, which means this could very well become Keir Starmer's problem sometime soon. What's been his reaction to the strikes? He's been supportive. He said he was informed in advance. Labour does support this operation against the Houthi rebels. It's clear that for some time now they've been carrying out attacks on shipping, commercial shipping in the Red Sea, putting civilian lives at risk as well as disrupting international trade and traffic and shipping. And so we support this action. There is a particular difficulty for him because when he stood to be Labour leader in 2020, he made a pledge that uh, he would pass legislation to ensure that the UK did not take military action without the approval of Parliament. And it was a very specific pledge and it was aimed at the left and it was part of his attempt to reassure the left as to who he would be if he became Labour leader. Though he denies this, he's watered that down to saying this pledge only really applies to the moment when British troops were being put on the ground in a military action of an extended nature. And he slightly watered down the idea there'd be legislation to ensure this. He says instead there would be a kind of change to the cabinet manual. He's annoyed at a part of the left in, in doing what he's done, but there's a bigger strategic calculation being made by the Labour Party that there are no votes in being seen to be opposing either Israel or the military action that's going on in, in Yemen. If he wants to have points of difference at the election, he doesn't want them to be about foreign policy. He wants to live down what is regarded as an unpopular and dangerous period when Jeremy Corbyn had a different kind of foreign policy. Coming up, how limited strikes in Yemen could quickly escalate into much more. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, 
You need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Patrick, you've described this standoff to us and I want to make sure that I understand the point that we're at now, which is that the Houthis are harassing ships in the Red Sea. The US and the UK have struck back to stop them from doing that. But every indication we have now is that that hasn't worked. So what are the options for the US and the UK? Well, I think the first step is just further strikes on where they think these missiles are coming from. The next step is to try to hit not just what they regard as the missile sites, but actually try to hit what they regard as Houthi headquarters so they could go further into northern Yemen. But I think the danger is you once you get involved in civilian casualties on a wide scale, you're really changing the nature of what you're trying to do. So I think it's a very, very difficult operation to what to do next. And I think there's a hope that Iran might put some pressure on the Houthis to desist, but I don't think that's happening. I think the Iranians are quite content to see this conflict between America and the Houthis develop. But what it overall does is it leads to America having to think about how much pressure it's putting on Israel to bring this war to a close in Gaza, because the longer it goes on, the clearer it is that the conflict is going to spread and escalate throughout the region and we're going to see more violence in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon and Yemen. That is the point being made by US and UK allies like Qatar and Oman. They say that rather than play into the Houthis' hands here, couldn't you put pressure on Israel to wind up its campaign in Gaza? And in doing so, bring the whole temperature down. Call the Houthis bluff and say, well, you wanted a ceasefire, you've got it. Exactly. And it's noticeable that there are very few voices in the region that are supporting what the US and the UK are doing. The only country that has been supportive is Bahrain, which is also the home of the US Fifth Fleet so that they don't really have any choice in this. But Qatar, which is also the home of a very large US airbase, has been quite openly critical about what America is doing and urging them to lower the temperature rather than raise it. Do you think at this point, the US in particular finds it easier to bomb Yemen, even while it's putting strain on their other relationships, than to put pressure on Benjamin Netanyahu and on Israel to curb what it's doing in Gaza? I personally find it striking that every time 
someone like the American Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, goes to Israel, he's really making the same requests and pleas to Israel about allowing more humanitarian aid in, about avoiding escalation, now trying to make Benjamin Netanyahu focus on getting the hostages released. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. Far too many have suffered. And we want to do everything possible to prevent harm to them and to maximize the assistance that gets to them. But each time he makes these pleas, and he's, on his, he's done his fourth tour of this, it's very repetitive, and it's also just an indication that he's not actually having that much influence in the way in which the Israeli government is conducting itself. He tends to leave Israel with very small concessions. The last one was that Israel agreed that they would allow there to be a UN humanitarian assessment of what's happening in northern Gaza, and that was the limit of it, and that's really pitiful in terms of given the amount of influence America potentially has over Israel. They're not exercising it. I mean, we've spent the past few weeks worrying about the ways this could escalate into a wider regional war. Do you think under our noses it may have already happened? Every morning one wakes up and there has been a new development, a new attack. Sometimes they're not always directly linked to Gaza, but it's a sign of the way in which the region is destabilizing. And as we speak, there is conflict in Lebanon, there's conflict in Syria, there's bombings in Iraq. It has spread. I don't know what point you need to declare it as a war as opposed to a conflict, but it is a conflict that is engaging at least five to six countries as we speak. Well, Patrick, we'll keep watching it and keep checking in with you. So thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Patrick Winter, The Guardian's diplomatic correspondent, whose reporting and analysis of these strikes is at theguardian.com. Before we go, yesterday, Donald Trump confirmed his stranglehold on the Republican Party, triumphing in the Iowa caucus. He was declared the winner about half an hour after voting ended. So it wasn't even close. You can get all the reactions to his performance and what it means for the other candidates with a special episode of Politics Weekly America from On Location in Iowa. It's out right now. And there's another special from New Hampshire coming Friday. Their primary is next week and Trump's in the lead there, but Nikki Haley is closing in. It's Politics Weekly America and you can find it wherever you listen to Today in Focus. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by George McDonough and Lucy Hoff. Sound design was by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Phil Maynard, and we're back with you tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.